Author Media presents Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr., and today we're going to talk about demographics and psychographics, how most authors use these poorly and how using them well can give you an edge. But first, I should give a trigger warning. We will be acknowledging the existence of politics on this episode. I will not be making any political statements or taking any sides, but I will be mentioning the thing that is in the room that uh, exists and that does affect uh, demographics and psychographics, particularly psychographics. But first, let's talk about where authors use demographics. Uh, The most common place for traditionally published authors to use demographic information is in their book proposal. There's a section where you're supposed to describe your reader, and most authors use demographic terms to describe their reader. And this is a mistake, and I'll explain why uh, later. At at least it's a mistake to do it only in this way. Uh, It's also used as a reader persona, which can be helpful as you're writing for a specific reader. Uh, Authors often will describe their reader persona using demographic uh, concepts, also website visitor personas. When Back when I ran a web design agency uh, for authors, we would take them through a persona exercise where we would help them uh, define the various people who would come to their website uh, so that they could target those people very well and thrill uh, those visitors to their website. Which, by the way, if you want help with that, I do have a free course on novelmarketing.com, Seven Secrets of Amazing Author Websites. And we actually go through those seven secrets are actually seven different visitor personas who will come uh, to author websites, what they're looking for, and how to thrill them. You can get that at novelmarketing.com. Uh, And then the final place authors use demographic information is in Facebook targeting. So while the traditionally published authors use it for their book proposals, independently published authors use it for Facebook targeting. So you may be wondering, what is a demographic anyway, or what are demographics? And uh, most people are familiar with these. These are things like age, race, sex, income, uh, location. These are kind of the broad brushes that are used to describe groups of people. And for the most part, demographics are useless, So, especially for authors. Now, to be fair, demographics used to work, especially back in the days when there were three TV channels and the um, you were targeting very kind of homogeneous groups of people. Uh, the problem with demographics is that they assume that everyone with demographic information the same is the same. And to kind of illustrate why this is less useful than it used to be, I want you to imagine a 31-year-old white middle-class woman in 1959. Uh, If you know that demographic information, uh, you know a lot about her. You can be statistically confident that she's married. You can be statistically confident that she's a mom, that she has approximately two children, that she goes to church on Sundays, with her husband. All of those things, there is a huge group of people that all kind of conform to that median uh, demographic kind of archetype. Uh, Now I want you to imagine a 31-year-old white middle-class woman in 2019. (laughs) The same demographic information, and yet we know far less about her. Uh, She could be an executive at a tech firm. She could be a full-time student still studying for a medical degree, or maybe she's working on a PhD in something else. She could be a stay-at-home mom. She could be uh, any number of things, right? So we have no idea what she is just from her demographic information. We have no idea if she goes to church on Sunday. We have no idea if she's divorced, single, 
single or married, and we have no idea if she has children. And so while demographics were more useful back in the day when everyone was trying to be the same, now when everyone is trying to be different, they are far less useful. And the other thing is that most books don't have a narrow demographic appeal. Uh, and when they do, that appeal is not unique to the book, but rather to the genre. And it's not that helpful. So while white middle-class boomer women may be the biggest consumers of romance novels, how is that useful to know when making decisions with your romance novel, right? You're like, I already know that, right? You may be like, I'm already in that demographic myself. How is that helpful for me? And the answer is it's not. And so oftentimes the uh, placing of demographic information into the book proposals, this thing that kind of is done out of obligation and it's never used to make decisions by anyone at any point. It's a complete waste of time because demographic information isn't very useful. And then demographics also don't capture the number one thing defining and separating people uh, these days, which is politics, right? Most Americans fall into three camps, left, right, and please don't talk to me about politics, right? That Those three buckets kind of capture most Americans. So the centrists are uh, going away, and uh, statistically, there's still some centrists out there. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the people who were centrists 10 years ago have moved into the please don't talk to me about politics camp uh, today. And this is really important to understand from a marketing perspective and from a targeting perspective, not just in how you market your books, but also how you word and describe your books and the language that you use inside of your books, because this fragmenting is happening at a very fundamental level. Uh, the left and the right are moving away from each other, not just ideologically, not just on uh, social media where they're unfriending each other, but they're also literally moving away from each other. Um, you know, Left-leaning Americans in middle America are migrating into places like California, New York, and Virginia, and there's a migration of, of right-leaning people out of those states and into middle America. So, and I've talked with people who are like, I want to be around others who are more like me, right? I'm leaving California uh, or I'm leaving Texas. I can't take it anymore. And again, I'm not taking any positions. I, I'm seeing it. The migration's happening both ways. In fact, they're often selling each other their houses. <laughs> they're uh, relocating to be around people who are more uh, like them. And I hear that the same thing is happening in the UK over Brexit. Leavers and are unfriending Remainers on Facebook and vice versa. I don't know if the um, migration is happening in the UK. I feel like people are a little more sticky uh, to where they live. There's there's less mobility uh, in, in the UK as opposed to the US. People don't just pick up and move to Scotland. Um, but there, there is a, a, a cultural, social kind of moving apart. And this really impacts marketing because your word of mouth, right, the kind of ripple, I guess we could use, uh, only works within social networks. And as the left and the right are moving away from each other, if you're rippling in one community, that ripple won't reach the other. And more and more each year, people on the left and on the right are reading different books. Uh, they're watching different movies. They're watching different TV shows. There's this um, kind of schism that's happening in uh, society. And, and, you know, don't shoot the messenger, right? If you don't like that that's happening, it's, I'm not at fault, right? I'm just describing what's happening. Uh, and as a marketer, uh, one of the kind of frustrating things about a marketer is that you have to work with the world as it is, not as you want it to be. So while we would like for everyone to get along and sing Kumbaya around the campfire, we can't make that happen. And if we want to sell our book, we have to sell our book in the real world. 
And uh, from, from my experience working for authors, for most authors, as many as 80% of their readers fall into the same bucket they do politically. So if they're in the please don't talk to me about politics bucket, most of their readers are in the please don't talk to me about politics um, bucket. Because that's if that's where you are, that's where the ripple starts, right? You are the stone that falls in the pond and the ripple only ripples in your own pond. And so unless uh, you are around people who are very different than you, you are uh, unlikely going to ripple in that pond. And you have to be okay with that to some degree because uh, you can make a lot of, you know, these three big buckets are very big, right? They're not demographic necessarily, um, but there's still a lot of people in each one of those buckets. We're talking uh, millions and millions of people in each bucket. So you can make a, you know, a lot of impact and a lot of change and a good amount of money selling books in whatever bucket you are. And we'll talk about ways of reaching different buckets here in a little bit. But anyway, those are the problems with demographic information. They don't capture the world as it is. They capture the world as it used to be. <laughs> so uh, what savvy marketers use, what savvy publishers use, and what savvy authors use now is what's called a psychographic. A psychographic looks at the psychology of the person rather than the superficial details, right, of how old you are, what ethnicity you are. That's not very helpful. But if you can understand someone's psychology, if you can kind of understand what your readers psychologically have in common, you'll be able to target them much more effectively because it may be that they're very different, right? They may look very different, maybe at very different ages, uh, and yet they have very common uh, psychology. The psychological need that draw, drew them to their book, to your book, once you understand what that is, it allows you to be far more effective in your marketing. So I'm going to kind of share some different uh, psychographic um, elements and just to kind of help you understand what psychographics are. Uh, so the first one, if you hear anyone talk about psychographics, it's attitude, right? So what is their attitude about a certain thing? So kind of the classic marketing 101 attitude is um, their attitude when it comes to money, right? I always buy the cheapest option versus I'm willing to spend extra for quality, right? Those are different attitudes that different people have, right? I know somebody who will always buy the cheapest option all the time, right? That's his worldview, and the way that you market to him is by being the cheapest, right? Like that's the only criteria. But other people look at quality and there's, there are, this is a continuum, right? So there's also the, a third kind of group in the middle, which is value, right? People who are looking for bang for the buck, um, the, you know, the elusive value uh, customer. But the, they can have attitudes about everything, right? They can have attitudes about your genre, right? The biggest um, challenge that you face is that most people have an attitude that is hostile to your genre, right? There's no genre that appeals to everyone, right? Every genre only appeals to a small slice of the pie, which means that every other kind of reader isn't going to be attracted to your genre. And so it's really important to kind of stick to your knitting, so to speak. So the most popular genre, mystery, thrill thriller, suspense, is still only a small slice of a pie that has a whole bunch of slices in it. And the next psychographic is desires. Uh, what is it that they want? And sure, there are the generic desires, right? We all want to be healthy, um, you know, that are kind of common to humanity, uh, uh, JFK did a really good, in one of his speeches, he was talking about certain desires that we and communists have in common or Soviets have in common, right? And um, they both love their children, things like that. I'm not talking about that because it's not helpful, right? Uh, what we're looking for is the desires that are unique to your readers that your non-readers don't have. 
So like the desire to be, you know, I want to be seen as a virtuous member of the community versus I'm going to live my life and I don't care what other people think, right? Th- those are conflicting desires. You know, some people may have both at the same time and be very, you know, in conflict with themselves, but most people fall to one side or the other on this continuum when it comes to whatever, right? So, um, environmentalism, right? I want to be seen as a virtuous member of the community who's a, you know, taking good um, care of the planet, or I'm going to do what I want and I don't care what other people think, right? It's the person who's driving the Hummer as opposed to the person who's driving uh, the Prius. Uh, so, you, you know, think about what is it that your readers desire? And we'll talk about how to get answers to these questions because I'm, I'm just giving like an example. It may not be helpful for your book specifically, um, but we'll talk about in, here in a second how to figure it out. Uh, another element of psychographics is fears. I feel like this is, especially right now, the most powerful psychographic that marketers are taking advantage of. If you watch uh, commercials right now, uh, which is football season. So it's the one time of the year I actually watch <laughs> television commercials. And I'm uh, very fascinated how many of the commercials are playing to fear of all of these psychographic elements, right? They're trying to scare you about how scary and dark and um, uh, risky the world is. And our product makes you safe. And you can trust us to take good care of you. We'll take care of your privacy. We'll take care of your health. We'll take care of your whatever. It's very, very powerful motivation. The reason why commercials are really targeting fears right now is that people are really afraid right now, and they're able to leverage that. I personally don't like uh, marketing to fear. I try not to do it as a personal practice. Uh, in fact, often we've taken really strong stances on this podcast against like big fear sensations, right? When everyone's freaking out about GDPR, we did an episode saying, hey, calm down. GDPR is not as bad or as scary as you've been led to believe. The same thing with the changes that MailChimp. So, but that's my personal preference. I, I also acknowledge as a marketer that fear is very powerful. Uh, right. So to kind of give you an example, you know, I'm afraid of guns versus I'm afraid of being an unarmed victim with no way to defend myself. Right. Those are both fears that lead people to totally different uh, perspectives when it comes to something. And I'll share an example of a book that plays to one of those groups here in a second. Uh, another is personality. Spending time with people charges me up versus spending time in groups of people drains me. Right. This is kind of the classic um, example of introverts versus extroverts. But there are books that appeal to introverts versus extroverts, right? There are ways of, especially novels, ways of crafting your story where it's more appealing to extroverts versus introverts. There's this um, theory that, you know, introverts are more likely to read books. I am not convinced by that. I think a lot of extroverted people really like to read books and write books too. You know, it's not all authors are introverted. You can always tell who the extroverts are because they're the ones who are still hanging out at the writer's conference after everything is ended. It's the end of the day on the third day. The introvert extroverts are all sitting around and they're still chit-chatting with each other while the introverts are all uh, back in their rooms trying to recover <laughs> emotionally. Um, but uh, you know how you craft your story, how many characters you have um, will appeal more to certain personalities versus others, right? Are you going to have a big cast or are you going to have a small cast? Uh, a lot of this uh, affects how you write the book and also how you market it to a certain degree. Uh, another psychographic element is pains. Right? What are the 
it could be physical pains, but usually it's more common to be psychological pain. So maybe you're writing a like a help self help book on like how to overcome some physical challenge, and you're literally you know it's like here's how to overcome osteoporosis, right? Everything you need, everything you need to know about osteoporosis, and you're a medical doctor and writing a book. Possible, but more commonly, especially for novelists, your book helps address a psychological pain. So to kind of give you an example of a pain that some people feel and to give you a sense of a continuum. Uh, so on one side we have, it hurts me to see everything changing so much around me. I feel like I don't recognize my country anymore. Versus, it pains me how backward everything is. We could be living in the future right now, but we're not. So do you see how those are two very different psychographic worldviews that two different white middle-class 31-year-old women could hold, right? The demographic picture doesn't capture that at all and yet if that is like their core pain they're going to be different on everything the way you market soap to them is going to be different the way you market food to them is going to be different and the way that you market books to them is going to be different if that is uh, the psychographics that they have Another psychographics are their values, right? Uh, what are their kind of deeply held values? And this, again, this is what's interesting about psychographics. Well, uh, demographics are skin deep, often literally skin deep. It's very superficial. Psychographics gets to the very core of who you are as a person. And it really forces you as a writer to understand your readers in a much more in-depth way. So, you know, values. So one person could say, I value autonomy. I don't want others telling me who I should be or what to do versus somebody else who says, I value family and I'm willing to make personal sacrifices to have a happy marriage and a happy family, right? Like the, this isn't, I, I just kind of came up with these examples off uh, off the cuff. So this is perhaps not a great example of kind of conflicting values, but it, it's an example, right? So you want to find out kind of what do my readers value specifically? Uh, another thing is like opinions, right? Are they a dog person or a cat person? Uh, opinions can be a psychographic element and a psychographic element. Uh, if you find the right opinion, it can be very targetable with Facebook ads or what have you. And then finally, um, passions, right? What are they passionate about? Are they an NFL fan? Are they a hunting fan? Are they an, an environmentalist? Do they believe that all sports ball is the same and they're not into sports at all, right? Like what their passions are is really key. Again, very helpful for targeting. Uh, with uh, your marketing, whether it's on Facebook or somewhere else. If you can understand that they're passionate about, your readers are all passionate about certain things, you can target things that no authors are targeting. So I'm going to give you um, some examples of what this looks like. Uh, psychographics are much more useful in helping you make decisions uh, because once you figure out what the psychographics of your readers are, they force you to understand your readers in a more fundamental way, like I said, uh, while demographics are very superficial. And while demographics ask the question who to get to the answer of who, psychographics ask the question why to get to the who. So they treat people more uniquely in a sense. So they, they ask kind of more probing questions. Uh, readers who share nothing in common demographically may like the same book. So here are some examples. I, I took a couple of books that are really were easy for me to kind of break down the psychographic why behind. And this is where... Um, It'll be interesting, you know, with your book to, to figure that out. So the first book is Monster Hunter International by Larry Correa. A very successful book. Uh, when I looked it up, I think it had 1,400 reviews on Amazon. And uh, it's created kind of a series empire of Monster Hunter books. Uh, these are urban fantasy books that I would summarize as libertarians with shotguns versus evil vampires. 
And I would venture to guess that 80% of the people who read these books own a firearm <laughs> because these books play to the fat fantasy of using a gun to defend your family from the evil world. And what is more evil than a vampire, you know, an undead creature who's trying to kill your family or a werewolf or a zombie. He's got all of that. So, it, and you know, you can kill a zombie without remorse because it's already dead. It plays to that. Um, value of protecting family, but also that kind of um, longing or that desire to be the hero who stands against the darkness with your shotgun. Um, and this is the kind of book that you could market at a gun show. It's not about guns, right? I mean, sure, they have guns while they're fighting these monsters, but once you understand the psychographics of the kind of person who this book appeals to, suddenly you're like, wow, I can market this book in a place that very few other authors are going to. Most people don't go to a gun show to market their book, right? And if you're targeting a different group of people, right? That would be the worst place to go to market your book. But for this book, that could be a way to do it. Or even if you're not physically going to a gun show, you could target those kinds of people with ads on Facebook. Uh, sorry, so now let's go to a very different kind of book. Uh, the Ebb Tide by Beverly Lewis. This is an Amish book, and it's a, a part of this Amish genre, which is huge. I mean, this is a genre that sells millions and millions of dollars worth of books every year. And it's driven by uh, if you look at it demographically, evangelical women buy Amish books. But that is not very helpful because not all evangelical women buy Amish. A lot of evangelical uh, women wouldn't touch an Amish book. And so if you're targeting demographically, you're going to get a lot of false positives if you're trying to market an Amish uh, book. The demographics aren't really helpful here. They're a little helpful. They're not very helpful. But when you look at the psychographics, you get a different picture. So Amish books are a balm for readers with a certain kind of pain, specifically the pain of future shock, the trauma of experiencing your culture change so quickly around you. If you are pained by the amount of change, you're just exhausted by the amount of change, uh, an Amish book is a vacation to a world where nothing ever changes, right? That's the whole appeal of an Amish book, is it, it, or one of the appeals, right? It's a, it's a wholesome context, but it's also a, con a context where you know exactly what you're getting because so little changes. So uh, where could you market an Amish book? Homeschool convention, right? The kind of uh, homeschool moms, often they're they're homeschooling with similar psychographic uh, motivations. Not all homeschool moms are into Amish, but it's the kind of, just like not all um, gun show attendees would be interested in a movie with, you know, vampires and zombies, uh, but it would be a market where suddenly you're not competing against nearly as many other authors. And this is the edge I'm talking about. So there's a bunch of different books, and I realize we have listeners across the political spectrum and around the world. So I realize I only shared political examples from the UK and the US. Those are the countries that I'm most familiar with the politics of. But this is true regardless of where you are and regardless of who you're targeting. The, the fact that uh, psychographics are very useful at finding ways of reaching potential readers that other authors aren't using. Every author's trying to copy every other author, right? They're like everyone's trying to like, what What are the best practices? What's the least amount of work I can do to sell the most amount of books, right? Everyone's looking for the easiest path. And what it ends up with is almost they're all doing the same thing. So I want to try to share with you a kind of a, a clue to a whole additional world of tactics that would be unique to you and unique to your book and uniquely effective. And psychographics are a key for doing that. 
I do want to say, though, that psychographics are not on a limit, right? You're, just because you're targeting one psychographic group doesn't mean that you're limited uh, to just that group. Uh, and there are ways of targeting uh, more than one group. So if you look at the, like, runaway best-selling books, they are able to appeal across the political spectrum and across different psychographic clusters. And the uh, company who's doing the, this the best right now uh, is doing it in film, actually, and it's Marvel. So they have this cinematic universe with all these different superheroes, and each superhero is crafted to appeal to a different psychographic community, right? The people who are fans of Iron Man are not the same people who are fans of Captain America, right? Like those appeal to very different groups of people, and it's not demographic, right? You'll have it demographically, it doesn't tell you anything, but there's a certain set of values that Captain America has that are different from the values that Iron Man has, and they appeal to a different kind of person. And those are just two examples. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has dozens of heroes that are each designed to attract different kinds of people. And they're able to bring them all together. Now, it'll be interesting to see how they do it as they're, uh, some of those characters are no longer with us. I don't want to give uh, any spoilers for those of you who are not up on your um, Marvel films. But you know, how will they do um, you know, the fourth iteration of Marvel without all of their mainstay heroes? All right, so you're like, okay, Thomas, I believe you. Psychographics are powerful, but how do I figure out the psychographics for my readers? Well, here are some tips uh, to help you do that. Uh, the easiest one is to read their reviews and look at the words that they say. Why do they like your book? This is only somewhat helpful, uh, especially if you don't have very many reviews, because uh, th there may not be enough here to kind of uh, connect the dots, so to speak. Right? You need two dots to make a line. You need to find those themes that the reviews have in common. Uh, the other thing that's challenging about this method is that, at least on Amazon, you don't know much about the person who's leaving the review. So it's a way to do it. It's a very quick way. You could go and read your reviews right now and kind of and do some analysis on what words they have in common and the why. You know, why is it that they like the book? What did they like about the book? Um, and another thing that makes this tricky, though, is that people often don't know why they like a book. <laughs> they, they just like it and they come up with reasons or they come up with very vague terms like, you know, it's very fast paced. I like the characters or, or something like that. It's like, well, that's not really that helpful. Um, another uh, tool that's more helpful uh, is to look at the other books that they read. So definitely on Goodreads, you can see other books that they read. And the collection of books that somebody's read reads creates a fingerprint um, that tells you a lot about somebody. This is how Amazon does their targeting. This is how machine learning works, actually. And machine learning doesn't really look too carefully at demographic information. This is not helpful. Machine learning looks at your actual behavior and your actual personal preferences, and then it finds other people with personal preferences, and it gives you recommendations based off of that, right? This is how your Spotify Discover Weekly playlist is often shockingly good. You're like, I've never heard any of these songs, and yet I like a lot of them. Now, there's some misses, right? Machine learning is is not perfect, but it's it's surprisingly good, and this is what this is how it works. It looks at the other songs you've liked, then it looks at the songs that other people like, and it finds those commonalities. It makes recommendations uh, based off of that. Uh, if you're unpublished, this works for both, but if, if you're unpublished, you can't read your reviews and you can't uh, look at the books that your readers are reading because you don't have any reads yet. And so my recommendation is to get to know yourself uh, on a psychological 
level. You need to look in the mirror and ask, you know, why is it that I read books, right? What am I trying to get out of this book? Why do I pick this book over this other book? Why do I read a book rather than watching some show on Netflix? For most authors, uh, they write for themselves, right? They are the target audience, especially for their early books. As as authors mature, as authors get more experience, they start to to expand uh, their demographics or or in their psychographic targeting a little bit and, and start to write for different markets. But Having worked with thousands of authors and looked at countless book proposals, almost always authors just describe themselves, right? So if the writer is a 45-year-old man, he puts in the demographics, I'm targeting men between the ages of 30 and 50, right? So just it's some sort of range that they're in the inside of. Uh, it's very rare do I see uh, in a book proposal someone describing a target audience that they are not either not in now, which is most of the time, or were in earlier, right? So sometimes somebody who, um, let's say, was going through a divorce, right? They're through the divorce now, but they're writing a book for people who are going through the divorce. So they're kind of targeting people, them, they're writing for themselves in the past. Very rarely do you have somebody who's writing for a group they're not in at all. Uh, most commonly, I see this in YA. So often YA authors are not YA uh, readers. They're, they're no longer young adults themselves. Uh, sometimes they are, uh, but usually they're not. But there's a gold standard. Uh, so th- those are all the kind of ways to do it that are kind of weak. <laughs> um, there's a gold standard, though, and you're not going to like it. But it's surprisingly inexpensive. In fact, it doesn't cost you any money at all. But you're not going to like it. At least some of you are not going to like it based off of your personality. And that is talking to your readers in real life and listening to what they say. You get to know your readers. You get to know the why. Right? You have to listen very deeply. This is not a superficial conversation. You have to really uh, get to know them uh, really well. And the one way to do this is to kind of gather to yourself a core group of beta readers that are kind of your team for each book. And you're just and you, you get to understand them and you get to understand why um, they're uh, drawn to your writing and why they're drawn to you know books in general, what they're looking for, right? The kind of person who's reading science fiction for escape is not trying to escape the same psychological pain as somebody who's reading fantasy, uh, or sorry, as somebody who's reading Amish, right? You know, the person reading science fiction is like, the future can't come fast enough. I want to go visit the future since it's not here now, whereas somebody reading Amish is wanting just the opposite, which is why a book about Amish uh, in space is tricky to sell, right? Because who are you targeting? You're targeting Amish readers who don't want things to change. It's very weird and different and new. Or are you targeting science fiction readers who are wanting things to be new? And Amish is very strange. Um, that book is targeted at science fiction readers because the Amish folks aren't going to go to sp- the Amish readers aren't going to go to space with you. Um, but anyway, uh, talking to them in real life and then also kind of having a focus group, which for, for me is like the launch team or the beta reader team or the research team. You can call it different things, but you have a, a small group of 10 to 20. Um, I'd, I'd max it out at 20. Um, probably 12 is like the ideal number. Scientifically, there's something about, um, 12 relationships. Uh, the math on that is very interesting. And we'll go into that now. But uh, when it comes to relations, uh, 12 is a really powerful number and 150 is a really powerful number. And kind of, you have like 12 close friends is your max and 12, 150 friends is your max. So typical funeral has 150 people at it, minus those who died already. 
typical wedding has 300 people at it minus the overlap between the social networks between the couple uh, assuming they invite all of their friends uh, which you know not everyone does uh, to their weddings but uh, roman units were 150 most uh, tribes indigenous tribes max out at 150 there's a lot of research on this you can you can look it up on wikipedia if you're curious Uh, i'm getting a little off track here so uh, real quickly, I want to talk about how to use psychographics to sell more books. Uh, so um, we've, I've kind of hinted at this already, but you're using the psychographic insights to design addictive and viral books. Once you are able to understand your readers in that deep way where you are meeting them in those core psychological places, whether it's their needs or their desires or their ambitions, their fears, their pains, their values, their passions, you, know, you don't have to target all of them, right? You just find one and target them on that, um, it will create the kind of book that they won't shut up about, and they'll tell all their friends about it, because it's like, yes, finally, a book that's for me, (laughs) and uh, it's really powerful. Uh, And once you understand that why, you can really double down on your marketing uh, and on your writing and really craft the kinds of books uh, that people will love. Uh, this is also really useful for uh, targeting Facebook ads, right? So if you're doing your research on Goodreads and you realize that 80% of your readers have all read a certain book, and it, maybe it's similar to your book, maybe it's not. It's like, well, gosh, I should target fans of that book on Facebook and fans of that book on Goodreads uh, potentially because my book uh, is appealing to the same people that this book appeals to. Uh, but it, but. Book, maybe not the thing, right? Maybe it's a movie, right? You're, um, everyone who likes your book also likes some other movie. This is one of the things we talked about with Chris Fox uh, when we were talking about Amazon ads and Facebook ads, how targeting people based off of their movie preferences is really powerful. But you need to understand them from a psychographic perspective. And you also need to understand you know, what, what are their interests, right? What movies do they like? Uh, and then uh, finally, for those of you who are traditionally published, put psychographic info into your proposal. Uh, savvy agents know psychographic info and they're very impressed by it. And marketing directors at publishing firms definitely know it and are definitely impressed by it. Um, so often uh, it, it, you just, that section of the proposal, which could be an asset, ends up doing nothing for you. It doesn't hurt you to put a generic target necessarily, right? If you're like, I'm writing for women between 35 and 60 um, it's like, okay, you just described most readers. It's not very specific. So you, the more specific you can be, the more you'll impress your um, publisher and the more likely they're going that this will be the section of your proposal that pushes them over the edge. It's not going to make or break you necessarily, um, right? They're, they're looking at your platform and you're writing on other factors, but this really will give you an edge. If you are tied with another book and they have generic demographic information in their proposal and you've got really clear psychographic insights into your target reader in your proposal, you are going to win. Like it will give you an edge in that way because it tells um, the publishing company that this is a savvy author. <laughs> this is an author who listens to novel marketing and is putting these things into um, practice. So I hope I hope that's helpful. Uh, I have some news. Um, the $5 patron level that came with the podcast host directory has sold out. There are zero um, left. Now, if somebody drops out, uh, you can jump in. So, you know, it's, it's staying at 100 is the limit. So somebody cancels or if they upgrade or they downgrade, their spot will become available. And I know some people have been kind of hovering on that, uh, hoping somebody will drop out. Um, I have uh, tweaked the um, 
levels on Patreon, Patreon, and I've added some new ones. So I want to go over those uh, very br- briefly. So there's a new $3 level that gives you both the discounts and the bonus episode each month. So this is the cheapest version we've ever had uh, for the bonus episode. The $5 level is the same. It's unchanged. Um, the $2 level has gone away. So instead of the $2 level, it was just the discounts. It's now a $3 level that has the bonus episode. But if you had the $2 level, you still have it. You're grandfathered in, and as long as you keep it, it will not go away. But you won't be able, if you cancel, you won't be able to get it back. Uh, and that's true with all of these changes. So you're grandfathered in if you're in one of the older uh, platforms. But I haven't taken away anything from any of the existing levels. I just added some things. Uh, there's a new $10 level. That comes with the podcast host directory and, you know, the bonus episode and the discounts, but it also comes with, I'm going to start listing um, patrons on the show notes of each uh, episode on novelmarketing.com with a uh, link to their book on Amazon, uh, maybe a link to their website, and for $10 a month, you get featured in that list. So if you want to link to your website, that's how you get it. Um, And then... The uh, $20 level is unchanged. You know, that's the one where you get your book featured periodically live on the air, and you'd also get all of the other levels. And I'm thinking about starting a higher level uh, that would be a uh, week uh, or sorry, a monthly mastermind call. So like a mentoring call with me and maybe nine other authors. So this would be a very limited level. And we would, um, you know, t- Get to know you. Get to know your book, especially over time. The longer you're in it, the more we get to know you. We'd be helping you set goals and accomplish those goals and also helping you apply the things we're talking about in the podcast, right? So like after this episode, for instance, you're like, gosh, I need help figuring out the psychographics of my book. We would, as a group, help you figure out the psychographics of your book. Um, So I'm thinking about starting that level. I haven't decided if I'm going to launch it yet, but if I do, I'm going to announce it to current patrons first. So if that's something that you're interested in or you're curious about, uh, make sure to join uh, Patreon now uh, so you for- get first dibs because there's there's a chance. I, I already mentioned it on Facebook, and there was, there was a good amount of interest, so it could be that this is going to sell out uh, right away. So maybe by the time I mention it on the podcast, it will already be sold out. I don't know. Um, or maybe I'm wrong. And no one, no one's going to be interested in it. Um, although if the, uh, interest on Facebook is any indication, uh, I think, I think there's some interest. Uh, and I'm also thinking about possibly doing two groups, uh, one that's a little bit cheaper for unpublished authors and one that's a little more expensive. That's an advanced one for authors who already have a book on Amazon. Uh, Cause that was another question. A lot of people had, um, it's like, well, what, what if I'm unpublished and unpublished authors have really different questions. Uh, somebody who's done a lot of coaching with authors, uh, the, the, the questions really change once you, your first book comes out. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Katie Harvey, author of Believe It and Behave It, How to Restart, Reset, and Reframe Your Life. Learn how to kick your inner shame and hatred to the curb. Whatever your personal setback, Kate will help you find new opportunities and make yourself better and stronger than ever before. And thank you, Kate, for... Uh, being a patron of the podcast, and we have uh, we'll have links to both Katie Hardy's website and her book in the show notes. So I recently had uh, surgery. It's just been one thing after another <laughs> this last few weeks, um, and I was I was feeling pretty weak. And uh, but we had an opportunity uh, to you know, go, I had an opportunity to go on a date with my wife. We had our 
my in-laws were in uh, looking after uh, baby Mercy. So we went out to this cidery, and uh, while we were there, a live band, uh, much too much, started performing, and they were amazing. We just sat there transfixed listening to this band uh, who was really, really good. And I felt really bad for them because, and they were announced this is the launch of their album after two years. They're, you know, this is the debut, and this venue that they're performing at was almost completely empty. Not because of anything they did, but because of just bad timing. The time that they were slotted to perform was during the University of Texas football game that day. And I'll tell you, uh, UT, uh, I think it's the only sports team I know of that has its own television channel right like this team is a big deal especially in austin and when there's a game going on the whole city shuts down no one is going anywhere doing anything and they're definitely not listening to live music and i felt bad for this band because the venue was mostly uh empty on the day of their debut of their new album but what was fascinating to me was that this was not their attitude right because there were people listening and they were enjoying the band was great and um, the, for the impression that I got was that they were living their dream, right? They were performing live music for an audience in Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world. And they were just happy to be there. They were happy for the applause that they were getting. They were happy for the attention from the audience that they were getting. And this made me think of my daughter, Mercy, who never gets unhappy when she falls down while, to- while toddling. Like, I'm, I'm constantly wondering, when is it going to bother her when she falls down while she's walking? She's kind of, you know, she's getting better at walking every week. She falls down a little bit less. And she will cry if she, like, falls down on something, right, and she's in physical pain. But she never cries out in shame or in frustration. It's like, why am I not walking better, right? Uh, she's just happy to be walking. And when I think about it, you know, she's been on her belly or on her back for her whole life. And standing upright is amazing, right? The ability to walk on your own two feet is so exciting if you've been on your belly or your back your whole life. And she's just happy to be able to walk when she's able to walk. And even if she can't do it well or do it all the, the do it all the time. She's just happy uh, to to do it at all. And I'm like that. They're so much happier. She's my daughter is so happy. And this the 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 way that she's thinking about life, you know, is is causing her to be so happy. Instead of focusing on the falling down, she's focusing on the standing up. And she's so excited when she falls down. She's so excited to stand up again. And she's starting to learn how to scamper. So she can't really quite run yet. She can scamper. So dart really fast. Uh, Doesn't end well often. She still falls down uh, after uh, scampering. But uh, my encouragement for you is to keep that kind of attitude with your writing, right? Like you have wanted to be a writer, chances are your whole life, right? From when you were really young, you've always wanted to write a book. And you know what? Now you're doing it. You are a writer. You are living your dream. Uh, so it's so easy to get focused on the next milestone uh, or comparing yourself to some author who's farther ahead of you uh, on the journey. Um that will just make you miserable. And I will say, I've coached authors at all levels, from just getting started to New York Times bestselling author making tons of money, right? I've, I've, and, and executives, right? I've, I've worked with people at all levels. And I will tell you, it never gets better. And it never really gets worse. Like, it, it, the journey is the journey. And you're either going to enjoy the journey where you're at, or you're never going to enjoy the journey. Because there's always some destination farther on that you can be focused on and frustrated that you haven't had, right? And I know 
best-selling authors who are sad and miserable because they're not award-winning authors and award-winning authors who are not sad and sad and miserable because they're not best-selling authors and people who've done both they're award-winning and they're best-selling but their books haven't been made into movies and somebody who's had their books made into a movie and that book hasn't been made into a good movie right or it's been made into a good movie but they haven't had a second movie they don't know if it's a fluke will lightning strike twice there's always something further on you can be miserable about not getting or you can enjoy the journey and enjoy the fact that you are living your dream you are standing upright you're performing for an audience in the live music capital of the world and enjoy where you're at so my encouragement to you is don't get destination fever where you're so focused on the destination that you forget to enjoy the journey because you will go farther you will go faster and you will go happier if you make a point to enjoy the journey where you are right now even if that's editing your first novel for the 20th time so um if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode do call our listener helpline 512-827-8377 or you can upload a high quality recording on novel market com forward slash contact. You've been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thanks for listening.